Community Radio. It's about real people. Not sound bites. Not more talking heads. Not on this show. Interchange is a community access media forum fostering unfiltered open dialogue on the people, issues, and events impacting life in South Central Indiana and beyond. Conversations that challenge the ways we perceive the world around us. Real people. Real issues. This is your forum. This is Interchange. Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. It's mighty low for us to sing America, America. God shed his grace on you with one breath and then with the other breath to deny workers the grace of labor rights and collective bargaining. To cut the grace of safety nets to the needy and raise taxes on the poor and working poor. To deny immigrants the grace of fair immigration policies. And to undermine the grace due to the rights of women and the LGBT community. It's mighty low. Tonight, even though it's Tuesday, we're going to be talking about Mondays. Moral Mondays, to be specific. We just heard a clip from a speech given by... Reverend Dr. William Barber at a rally in North Carolina earlier this year. Barber is the head of the North Carolina chapter of the NAACP and one of the organizers of the Moral Mondays movement. Joining me in the studio to help us understand this topic and its relevance to the citizens of Indiana are William Morris and Joe Varga. William Morris is an attorney with Indiana Legal Services where he works on low-income housing and homelessness prevention. Prior to that, he was a civil rights lawyer for a dozen years in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Morris is a member of the Indiana Moral Monday Steering Committee, and we're pleased to have him on Interchange to talk about Moral Mondays, its goals, objectives, and challenges. Welcome, William. Good to be here, Doug. And Joe Varga, an assistant professor of, professor of labor studies at Indiana University. He's a former Teamster shop steward and a longtime labor activist, having worked for the IBEW and the New York State Working Families Party. He is currently working on a project detailing the spatial history of deindustrialization in southern Indiana. Joe is also active in Jobs with Justice and numerous other activist causes. Welcome, Joe. Hey, Doug. Uh, it's great to be here. Support WFHB Community Radio. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, we should dive right in, guys. What is Moral Mondays? Brother William? Well, Doug, uh, Moral Mondays goes back to, to North Carolina, as you talked about, um, about 10 years ago, there were a group of pastors uh, with the NAACP and a group of other um, faith leaders, uh, Unitarian church leaders, civil rights lawyers, a group of people who were meeting regularly to start to figure out how to fight poverty, how to fight racism, how to fight ground roots, conservative movements that were starting up, and really how to fight uh, a very dramatic shift in the political landscape of North Carolina and a, a drastic reduction of rights in workers' rights, teachers' rights, voting rights. And I think anybody who sort of charted the North Carolina landscape knows that this happened very quickly and, and something needed to be done. Um, Moral Mondays started out of these conversations about what could be done to confront these changes. 
it sort of came to a head or a culmination last year when a decision was made by, I believe, 17 faith leaders, including Reverend Barber, to go to the State House in Raleigh to sit, to sing, to pray, and to sit and to sit beyond the time that the state house was open to practice civil disobedience on a Monday. And they coined it Moral Monday. And then every Monday after that, for the rest of the spring of 2013 and the summer of 2013, an increasing number of people started to come to the Raleigh State House every Monday. And it ended up being several thousand, over 3,000 people that were arrested. And not just faith leaders, but concerned citizens. And the whole thing, which is so key about this, Doug, is that not only was Moral Mondays about what started out about voting rights, and everybody could sort of hop on to that. But it became about other issues. It became a matter of building a coalition of issues about things where people could find agreement and move forward because there were so many rights being trampled on. And so very soon it became labor, education. It became criminal justice rights. Uh, it became uh, LGBT issues, uh, same-sex um, same marriage. And there were just more and more issues. And so then the thing grew to where the march, actually, that you played where Reverend Barber's saying, that's way down low. It's mighty low, mighty low. I was at that march, and, you know, there were 80,000 people there. And just from so many different sectors of society, you understood that... Um, there, was a, there are a lot of people with a lot to say, with a lot of anger, who are looking for a way to work with other groups and recognizing that no particular agenda is going to be advanced unless you find a way to hook with another and say, let's go together and do it together. Now, it's interesting that uh, I think North Carolina in particular became a, a sort of the, the, the match-striking point right there, specifically because of its what seemed a, a Tea Party takeover in the state, and it, it came to a head, I think, with this particular situation. Um, and it, I think you did uh, recognize that particular issue, that it seems to be a, uh, a, a movement against what have, what have been conservative politics, uh, at least generally. Um, do you think that's the case here? Yeah. Um, Joe Varga. One of the things that happened in North Carolina between 2010 and 12, you had the elections in 2010, which were largely a reaction against Barack Obama's administration. So these national issues became very local. And by 2012, if, I, if I'm reading it correctly, North Carolina for the first time had complete control in Republican hands, I think since the Civil War, since Reconstruction. It's some kind of number like that, where the Republican Party had veto-proof majorities in both their House and their, their state Senate, and in the governor's office, they had a, a fairly active Republican governor. And that is what f caused, I'm gonna use the word orgy, this orgy of legislation between 2010 and 2012, including restrictions on voting rights and, and other issues that really caused this reaction of, of people saying enough is enough. And We've seen it over the last, uh, I'm going to say the last four years, we've seen these reactions, you know, in the wake of the financial disaster of 2008 and the Republican obstructionism at both the national level and the, and the activism, the Republican. So, so you've got two movements. You've got this Republican obstructionism at the national level where they've blocked every piece of progressive legislation that the Obama administration has tried to push through. And then you've got radical activism 
at the state level. And yeah, there's been other reactions, of course. There's been the Wisconsin reaction. That was the first one. Uh, Wisconsin got a lot of people on the progressive left excited, the reaction against Scott Walker's uh, kind of radical agenda in Wisconsin that, that was a lot about labor rights. And there's been others. There's been the, there was the, the reaction in Ohio to the attack on labor rights. But it, what excites me about Moral Mondays and what happened in North Carolina is that it was sustained over time. It was about, it wasn't purely about writing um, letters or signing petitions. It was about direct action at the point of contact between the people and their representatives. And that that's... Uh, and it was also about the fusion politics, about trying to bring all of those issues together because enough groups and enough interest groups are at that point where they're saying enough is enough, what are we going to do? So yeah, there's been this pushback against, um, again, bo both a conservative or whatever you want to call it, Tea Party obstructionism and a radical, act radical activism in the states. Hmm. The states have been kind of the experimental laboratories for... Uh, and some of the results are coming through right now in, in places like Kansas, where they also had veto-proof majorities and a Tea Party takeover. And the reaction is that their their Republican governor might get voted out in the state of Kansas mm. um, because his his policies have been so radical and so reactionary that they've caused disaster in the state budget. So you see yeah. this as um, obviously coming out at the same time as the Occupy Wall Street movement, mm -hmm. or similarly, we have the same reactions in different sectors. But these, again, like you say, maybe. Uh, sustainable past what what happened with Occupy Wall Street, which seemed to o occupy a different space entirely. This is seems very much a grassroots uh, situation, and retaining those meeting times in a sense, or always having this sense of politics that doesn't happen every two years, mm -hmm. but it happens every Monday in a sense. So, right. I mean, that we build these, like you say, these coalitions of activities that we can sustain over time because they're communities rather than politics necessarily. Right. You know, Reverend Barber and the folks in North Carolina, and I think, you know, we spend a lot of time focusing on Reverend Barber because he's a very dynamic speaker and uh, uh, Duke School of Theology grad, so he's he's he talks to your heart, but he talks to your mind. But he's a representative of a group of people, and he'd be the first one to tell you that. And I think what what Reverend Barber's trying to do is to pin this down as really a moral issue. It's not just an issue that is oh okay, let's just call it Moral Mondays. No, there's something that he speaks to, and he speaks to the common faith that each person has. This thing that says, who do we take care of? We take care of those who have the least. We feed those who have the least. We pick up those who are suffering the most. We look and identify the needs of people who are in poverty. And you know, as we talk about Indiana, as we start to try to plant this thing in Indiana, and we talk about, well, Indiana has a 14 to 16% poverty rate, the national level's 10%. We talk about Monroe County here with a 25% poverty rate, the highest in the state. How is that possible with such, such great wealth here? How is that possible with IU here that we would have the, low, the highest poverty rate? So I, I'm not trying to identify specific counties or really even specific issues. I think what I want to do though is, under, is for our for listeners and for, for us in this conversation to understand that when you listen to Reverend Barber, you're going to hear this King, Dr. King-esque appeal to the better angels of our nature. 
And this is where this comes from. Because doctor, what this movement believes, and we talked about this last night, Joe and I at another meeting we were at, is that you have people who are poor, who are down, downtrodden, who are beaten up by the system, and they believe that the very system that's holding them down is their friend. Right. And this is what Dr. Barber's trying to get at, slowly and surely, state by state. So, it's, so there are issues to be addressed, but this is also really what I think, it's a clarion call to wake up, because if we don't work together, we're going to fall together. Well, there are several states that have, have sort of begun to take take this kind of movement in, into its heart as well. We, we, I think Georgia, Florida as well, um, Alabama, and then I think there's a Truthful Tuesdays now in South Carolina. Um, so in Tennessee, too, I believe. Oh, okay. And Indiana, of, uh, of course. So, mm-hmm. um, you, But again, I think that we've, even though I, I hear what you're saying, uh, William, in terms of trying to understand how we help um, a people or a group of people that haven't been served by the system um, and understand that the system is what's what's keeping them where they are and trying to move beyond our ideas of how we do uh, democracy in a sense. I think this is, you know, one of those places where maybe we can learn how it is that we're supposed to be heard. You know, not, again, not just at the voters booth, not just choosing uh, red or blue or maybe purple or some green or, you know, that this is the idea of how to do democracy. And uh, Joe, you talked about direct action. You want to mm-hmm. address that any further? Well, uh, one of the things I, I think is interesting, and yeah, we had talked about this last night. We had a little local meeting of people who are interested in uh, the Indiana Moral Mondays movement. And we were talking about how, um, yeah, the very people that our system kind of chews up and spits out oftentimes either feel so powerless that they don't participate in the system or they will openly uh, declare their allegiance for the people that appear to be their oppressors. And I was just reading this wonderful piece of, uh, of writing from a couple of political scientists from Chapel Hill, in fact, North Carolina, who did a study over the last 70 years. And what they've shown consistently that more people in 1936, when Roosevelt was about to just destroy Alf Landon in, in, in the 36 elections, and it just pushed through the New Deal, people overwhelmingly said that they approved of the policies that his administration was, were, was passing, but they also identified themselves as conservatives. Mm-hmm. They, they did not want to be identified publicly and politically with Roosevelt's movement. So they, they liked the policies because they knew that it was a system that kind of you know chewed them up. And if they didn't have those kind of protections, those protections that we form collectively, we form those collectively. Those are not about individuals. They only form through these kinds of coalitions and these kind of fusion politics. So they supported those policies, yet they would call themselves conservative. They didn't want to be associated with that. And so I think the way that you reach that mass of people is through action. You can do all the kind of reframing that you want with your words, but if you show people that you're committed to doing things that will help them in their daily lives, like taking that kind of action at the at the point of contact with representatives, I think that, I don't think there's anything that's more important than that right now. And you know, we started the Indiana Moral Mondays movement back in March. I had just come back from the North Carolina March uh, in Raleigh, um, and when I got back, it just saw by serendipity there was an announcement that some people wanted to start the Indiana Moral Mondays movement and try to figure out how to put this thing together. So we met in March, and we've continued to meet every month. We continue to have conference calls from people from all around the state um, um, that represent different walks of life. 
um, from Evansville to South Bend, from Richmond to Terre Haute, Bloomington, and other areas around um, Indiana. And I think we're starting to understand as we work through this thing, Doug, that this is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And I think we talked about that last night, that all of us that really feel the force of this movement and the strength of its possibilities understand we have to be in this for the long haul. Now, one of the things I want to make a distinction about, and I think Reverend Barber really makes this distinction and the North Carolina movement makes this distinction. This is really not about Republican Party or Democratic Party. And it's really not a direct attack on the the other conservative ground, <laughs> you know, Tea Party. It's not really a response to that. But it's the idea that if that kind of organization can take place and can put people in office and can raise money and can get um, an attention on, on certain issues, then we should be able to do the same. And if we're not able to do it, then something's wrong. Mm -hmm. And so this is going to take a lot of work. Um, and if I could, and I'm not trying to uh, uh, be a marketing ploy, but we we're having uh, Reverend Barber come into town this uh, Friday and Saturday. Uh, he's going to give a workshop, a five-hour workshop, to talk about how Moral Mondays movements are planted and sustained um, and, uh, and governed, I suppose you could say, in the state. And there's dinner. we're going to have a, a large meeting of, of faith leaders at Crispus Attucks High School, historically black high school in um, in Indianapolis, and then uh, we're going to have a bunch of workshops, maybe about ten particular topics at the at the high school on uh, Saturday, and then a march to the state house where uh, Reverend Barber and uh, a dozen other speakers from different uh, areas are going to be speaking. So that's just really our first step here in Indiana. Then after that, really our work begins. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you you mentioned the 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 marathon versus the sprint, right? And one of the difficult issues I think for most of us is to understand that while we're running that slow pace, that there are sprinters out there that are organized differently and have money. Money sprints and these these direct not not saying that there's this isn't a great thing, but part of the difficulty is combating the sprinters who can uh, have relay races. You know, so the sprinters have relay races, and I, I hope that analogy makes sense. Uh, they keep handing off to more money and you hand off more to more money and you're trying to continually build a slow coalition and uh, I think the foundation may be greater uh, but you're still fighting against I think in kind of an entrenched um, system that 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 uses money more than anything else is that 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 makes sense right yeah it makes a lot of sense Doug and I guess my um, thought about that is that while we would like to have a create a, a system, a, a movement that protects those uh, who are poor and in poverty, not everyone that's joined us is impoverished. I mean, um, one particular uh, coalition partner, for example, is um, Hoosiers for a Common Sense Health Plan. And uh, Dr. Rob Stone and his wife Karen are a part of this. And I think as, as they have gone around the state and gathered support, many, many of the people who support common sense health care, they're not poor people, and they're, they're people who are willing to support financially, support with time and money and effort and voice, and I think that there are some issues, that there are certain issues, voting, all of these issues, voting rights, health care, labor rights, where people are, I think people are, are willing and able and ready 
to come forward, coalesce, and figure out what they can do. They're ready to put the money forward, I believe. Well, here's a big question, and I think it's always an interesting one in terms of uh, how we get people together. One of the things that is that is sort of obvious sometimes is that that we don't have often the people that are in, in dire, most dire circumstances as part of the movements. Uh, is that a, an issue here? Or do you have a lot more people involved who are part of the movement, who are who are impoverished, who are you know perhaps struggling to to get by? You know, may I, may I go back a little of course, bit? Sure. One of the um, the ideas of Moral Mondays is for anybody who's thinking about how is this thing put together. The 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 image that I've always had is is Moral Mondays is like a big tent. It's like a big circus tent. And that tent is held up by two poles. And those two poles are basic historical ideas and concepts. And those ideas are racism and poverty. Racism and poverty. Now, if a person or an organization, if they can get into this and, and understand this and accept this historically as two bases that have really eroded certain positive aspects about our country from going back to the origins of the constitution when black people were, were called three-fourths of a man and on through the civil war and on through the civil rights movement and all the time and joe can talk about this about the impoverishment of the working man you know through our brother eugene debs here in indiana and and on through other movements well, once you can get, grab that and agree to that, then everybody's welcome into this tent of Moral Mondays. And I think what you've seen in North Carolina is people have said, okay, we understand that. And we're going to take those as our two basic pillars. Now, here in Indiana, have, have we seen a, a, an upsurge of, 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 those, of people who are, let's say, below the poverty, poverty line? No, not yet. We won't know, really. We'll see our first real mass meeting will be this Saturday. Yeah, this weekend. Good. we got to take a break right now. Uh, if you're just joining us, we've been talking with, excuse me, talking about Moral Mondays with local Indiana Legal Services Attorney William Morris, who is a member of the Indiana Moral Mondays Steering Committee, and with Joe Varga, a labor studies scholar at IU, who is participating in Indiana Moral Mondays and his role as a Jobs with Justice activist. Stay with us on Interchange on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Our topic tonight is Moral Mondays. Mighty Lord, after you've committed this, all of these low acts, to then commit crimes against democracy and try to suppress and undermine the right to vote. It's mighty low to gerrymand redistricting, to roll back same-day registration, early voting, Sunday voting, remove public finance, refuse to let 16 and 17-year-olds pre-register, and to pass voter ID laws that are worse than South Carolina and Alabama. And that a federal judge in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, just said was unconstitutional. I tell you, my friends, in the face of these decisions, we have to look at policy through the moral lens of justice for all and through the constitutional principle of the good of the whole. Yes, Kicking hard-working people when they're down is not just bad policy. It's against the common good and a disregard for human rights. And it is a refusal to lean to the better angels of ourselves. 
We just heard Reverend Dr. William Barber at a rally in North Carolina where the Moral Mondays movement got its start. Barber is the head of the North Carolina chapter of the NAACP. This weekend, Barber will be in Indianapolis with Indiana Moral Mondays and will join in a march that starts at 1 p.m. on Saturday that will begin at the historic Crispus Attucks Medical Magnet High School and will continue to the steps of the state capitol, that's 200 West Washington Street, where Barber will make a speech. Joining us tonight to talk about this, local Indiana Legal Services Attorney, William Morris, a member of Indiana Moral Monday Steering Committee, and Joe Varga, a labor studies scholar at IU, who's participating in Moral Mondays in his role as a jobs with justice activist. Uh, William Barber there talked about voter suppression. Do we have some issues with that in Indiana? Joe Varga? Uh, yeah, uh, Indiana does have uh, restrictive laws about voter ID. Um, part of the problem with Indiana is there was we were talked about this one last night. There was that article that came out about six months ago, and I, f- I forget the author. You were you were talking about it, but it's it's the reddest state you've never heard of. Indiana tends to fly under the radar on a lot of these issues, so um, the the other states get the big headlines about these voter suppression. Um, uh, legislation and Indiana. Indiana has a, from what I consider and from my observation, we have a very wily uh, state legislature. We have a, a, a Republican majority that seems to pull back from some of the more radical aspects that you'll see in other states like North Carolina. Um, but the end result is just as bad, and the end result we see around us is suppression of voting rights. Uh, the the numbers here in Indiana. Um, embarrassingly are always near the bottom in in any kind of negative um, aspects of public health, public education. We're always in the bottom of childhood obesity, childhood diabetes, rates of smoking, rates of, you know, unhealthy uh, adults. Income um, inequality income between inequality. men and women was in the newspaper there, last There week. was a, new, a story in the paper the other day from that radical leftist organization Standard & Poor's <laughs> credit rating agency that says Indiana is among the states where income inequality is literally destroying the ability of the state to function. Mm. And so, yeah, on top of voting rights, we've got we've got yep. many, many other issues here in Indiana. But I think that even more, just more more importantly, I loved Dr. Barber's uh, uh, phrase there, crimes against democracy. Um, and I think that's the point where we've hit. We are, we're hitting a point where, uh, and, and we've been at it for a while, where what I know as a, as a left progressive activist, I know so many people who are just walking around going, when is this going to end? When is this going to end? When are people going to wake up? And I think if enough crimes against democracy are, are carried out, people will and are waking up and what they need are things to coalesce around that can bring in all of those issues that we just and you know Doug as 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 we were talking about poverty before you know I've got health insurance and I've got a decent car and I own a home but I am one major illness away from being in poverty and most of the people I know are in that ship so we can think that we're not impoverished because we have an education or we have a job or whatever, but really we're one very vulnerable step away from um, from finding ourselves outside of a system that can't help us and won't help us. Well, that's a, a, a pretty serious question is how or where you get help generally, right? Imagining that the system has any interest in helping you is is to project, I suppose, human feelings onto a thing that, that's just going to chew you up and spit you out probably. But the the fact that, um, that that's what we're facing, I think, in, in general, 
uh, is 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 coming to light, right? The the fact that even people that like to think of themselves as middle class are, as you say, a hair's breadth away from being no longer even able to think about voting rights because they have to think about where to put, you know, how to get food. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these are issues I think that are interesting too in terms of how that population that has to struggle day in and day out just to live becomes political. You know, here's a situation where it seems like they can become political here. Uh, because of this broad sense of how we're, we're struggling against these particular uh, abrogations of rights. Well, they used to call this the middle class. And so um, I think when we gather on Saturday and when we gather after Saturday, we're not just looking at, at gathering those who are in the lower one-tenth of income makers. We're talking about people who are in my income bracket or yours or Joe's or or people who are susceptible to... In, uh, to this type type of vulnerability to inequality to to everybody here I believe is vulnerable um, at some particular level and uh, I think what this movement tries to do is to bring us together I think if you came up to our to our meeting you'd see that um, well Joe has been there so you would see working people you see union people you see professors you see uh, a feminist you see LGBT people and I think what you see is a, is, is a is a wide a broad swath of people all of whom feel this vulnerability none of whom are coming to the meeting saying okay I'm going to bring you into some sort of protection zone that I'm in no all of us feel that same way hmm. is that the go ahead yeah, I, I just wanted to, to add to your question which is a great one um, there has been a change. There has been a change in the United States and in global politics as well. There was a time when it was incumbent upon American corporations to be invested in the health of both the middle class and even the working poor. And I really believe that that has changed. Um, so our state, our state system coming out of the Second World War was built upon middle class prosperity. And at one time we even had, God forbid, a poor people's movement. There was a movement for poor people's rights in this country because there was some investment, at least by part of the political class, in the health and well-being of the working class and the middle class. With the globalization of our economy, with the fact that corporate, if we look at GE, GE was once one of the big employees around here, GE just sold off their appliance uh, aspect to Electrolux. They weren't even making their money in appliance manufacturing anymore. They had made most of their losses actually in investment, in investing in subprime mortgages. So that kind of removal or you know, flight of capital has meant that there's a there's a real shift in what our political class pays attention to, and they're not all of them, but most of them are bought off by the unlimited money in our election system right now, and so there is no representation, particularly for the working poor at this moment. There's nothing. There is no poor people's movement. There's no there's no place for these people to turn, and I think the most important thing that we could be working on right now is creating a new set of demands based on this kind of fusion coalition politics that starts to represent all of us. Mm -hmm. And then that in turn will cause a change, a a seismic change in our political system if we can do it and do it right. And again, do it in the long haul as as William is emphasizing. And and a lot of this has to do with educating, Mm -hmm. educating people about uh, what kind of advantages and, and, and pluses that just about what issues they face. It's and a I question think of so how many people just don't are, are not informed. You know, we were talking about this as another thing last night, is that a lot of times 
most of us nowadays, either one, we're overburdened with information, or two, we just don't even have time to pick up the issues because we're so busy worrying about survival. And so before we know it, uh, we've been swept away by things we're trying to fight here with Moral Monday. Well, it's a question of how we, how we organize ourselves and what, what's important to us and trying to understand what narrative serves us as people. You know, uh, what we were talking about before, the, the fact that there, there are certain groups of people who believe that they are voting ag- or who are voting for their interests while they are actually voting against their interests simply because they are voting for a party that, that sees... Uh, wealth and power as the primary aspects. It's a political class, it's a corporate class, and that's where representation lives now. So uh, something like Moral Mondays makes sense if we can, uh, as we say, get the people who had no sense that they weren't being represented. You know, here, here's, here's I think the difficult part, right? Even though I see the shift and I hear it here tonight, the idea that, you know, people don't, still don't think that that's them. Right. right, that they still don't think that we are one one uh, medical mer- emergency away from poverty or that we're right. not being represented. If I can jump back real quickly yeah, to that question, what, what I brought up earlier, mm-hmm. where the majority of people will support the social policies right. that are generally associated with sort of left-of-center liberalism but will identify mm-hmm. with, the, with an opposite political party. Uh, the reason for that is most people know when they're getting the shaft. Mm-hmm. They know it. Um, they know what injustice is. Most people, like myself, I cannot define injustice, like Felix Frankfurter said <laughs> right. about pornography, right. but I know injustice when I feel it, and I know injustice when I see it. And I think that's true for most people. Um, and again, I'm going to go back to this emphasis on, yeah, we, we can change the narrative and we can we can redirect our words in the proper order, and that'll be exciting for some people. But action, I think, speaks much louder than words, and we need to get out there and we need to take this kind of action. You know, if I could cite something here, you know, talk talk about putting language, and this is language that really um, resonates with me that comes from um, one of Reverend Barber's speeches, and he says, let me make it plain to you. The reality is the greatest myth of our time is that extremist policies only hurt a small subset of people, such as people of color or women or the poor or LGBT community, when in fact they hurt us all. And I think this is the thing that sort of resonates through the movement for me. Right. So let's let's uh, look um, actually more specifically. I know that we we tried to uh, avoid a political p- perspective on one sense, but we did talk about the policies that have been uh, enacted and the idea that these are particular rights that have have been taken away in some sense or or, or been blocked uh, and even removed uh, voter rights or suppression in in certain states voter IDs. Um, the the continuing push for uh, seemingly impoverishment with debt, student debt, um, the fact that so many people actually probably operate on a debt schedule anyway to to even live their daily lives. And so these things seem to be policies enacted to keep people in a particular place. And this is not just Republican or not just conservative. We have an economic class in a sense, right? We have Democrats who are corporatists as well. And we're trying to not be political here, but if we talk liberal, left, progressive, you know, are we talking against uh, right, conservative, 
uh, also. You know, there's there's this, and, and I would say, and I'm I'm probably muddling too many things here, but it's interesting to have a uh, a religious or faith based or f- uh, faith coalition on one hand, which we often co- kind of con- put together with with a conservative or or a right side of things as well. And here you're seeing a liberal perspective on faith as well. Is that is that am I characterizing that? <clears throat> anywhere near <laughs> well no no I, I think um when we look at like the five demands of of yeah let's of, look of at those Mondays, actually let's go ahead and look um, at those and we, one we of the things that the steering committee i think has discussed and is and would like to do has said as one of its goals is to take the five demands find legislation in indiana that is hurting let's say quote unquote hurting poor people and figure out how to start either working in the state house or find cases that would lead us to walk into the courthouse. Mm-hmm. So it would either be the state house or the courthouse or the voting booth. And we need to identify those issues, that legislation, those parts of the state where we need to go to work. There's obviously a strategy that has to take place after Reverend Barber leaves to to uh, to mobilize people. Um, so let me just read these sure, very quickly. Yeah. One, to secure pro-labor, anti-poverty policies that ensure economic sustainability. Next, provide well-funded, quality public education for all. Stand up for the health of every Hoosier by promoting health care access and environmental justice across all the state's communities. Address the continuing inequalities in the criminal justice system. And we've talked about this many times, and Joe's heard me say this, 9% of the state of Indiana is African-American, 35% of its people in prison are African-American. Something's wrong there no matter how you look at it. And ensure equality for all, for every person, regardless of race, class, creed, documentation, or sexual preference. And last, protect and expand voting rights for people of color, women, immigrants, the elderly, and students to safeguard democratic representation. So there's a place for everybody there. There's no question about that. And the question is just how do we take these then and implement them in a working plan that starts to include more people, go to the state house, go to the courthouse, go to the voting booth. Mm-hmm. It's a tall order, obviously, but they, it's interesting too to, like if you start to walk back and try to understand how each thing uh, affects every one of us. So if you talk about uh, public education or quality education, and right now uh, we're we're fighting. Uh, I think your the the situation that you're in to to fight from this perspective is that there is a grassroots movement to fight public education itself. So in one sense, you think we need to fight to have better public education, and on the other side, or the right side, or the conservative side, there is we need to have better publication public education, and how we're going to do it is defund it. Right, so you're fighting in in a same kind of weird narrative space. Public education is failing, and one wants more public education or to serve better, you know, to do better work, and the other one wants to defund it mm-hmm. or uh, leave it for the rest of us, in a sense. So, you know, how how you sort of struggle into that space of of trying to understand that you're you're walking into the same narrative space for people on the right and people on the left and one is how do we get the government out and and do these you know that's why I like vouchers it's why I like the ch- corporate charters perhaps these are taking education dollars away from the state yeah let Go me ahead. speak to this a little bit sure. because I am certainly not an expert in any uh, in every one of these issues and what we've tried to do in Moral Mondays is Indiana Moral Mondays is to set up committees 
that deal with these particular issues. Obviously, Joe is going to be a person or is a person that's on our labor committee. The person who's ahead of our education committee is a woman in Indianapolis, a retired teacher named Diana Daniels, who hails out of Mitchell, but is the executive director of the National Council for the Education of Black Children. She discusses this issue very well, much better than I can, and uh, much more eloquently. And she identifies, you know, one of the things, and I've, I've spoken with Diana at length on the telephone, and every time I get off the phone with her, I feel like I've spoken to, uh, I feel like I've just had a great walk through a, a museum of Indiana history because she knows so much about education here. And I think when we look at uh, the charter school issue here in Bloomington, I know that there's a lot of people who, you know, when I go to the market on Saturday, there are people who can strongly argue and advocate for strengthening our public school system here. I think when you go to Indianapolis and Terre Haute and South Bend, I think you start to really feel that issue, how grave it is, because even the charter schools there are terrible. And so there is no justice. Uh, money's being taken out of the public school system to fund charter schools that are coming up with even lower I-STEP results than the public schools. And so it doesn't even make sense there. I don't know that we see that issue quite that clearly here because everybody loves the project school. Everybody wants their kid to go there. So I don't, I don't know. There's outliers in that. And I'm not sure that the project school or other schools like that aren't outliers. But I think in, in, in other areas of Indiana, you see... Uh, the gravity of that issue. The, the health care issue tends to be the same way we, you know, and, and uh, Rob and Karen do a great job with spreading the word about universal coverage and, and we, you know, I my concerns about my health care are my premiums are going up, but the fact is that the state of Indiana and our governor and our legislature have refused to expand Medicare when they had the opportunity and it literally kills poor people. I mean, it literally kills them. And what does it do when it kills poor people? When it, when it robs them of their ability to get regular checkups, when it robs them of their ability to get preventive medical care, it affects our entire community. It takes a valuable resource, a human being who could be a productive member of our society and forces them into situations where they're constantly scrambling, where they're one paycheck away from being homeless, where they're not being able to put their talents to use. And that affects each and every one of us. Can, do you mind if I, can I go on? We were, I was talking in a class the other day and Williams there was talking about um, I am going to cut you off. I okay. need to take a break. We can come right back to it, though, sure, okay? Sure. Yeah, so remember what you're going to say. We've got to take a break, and if you're just joining us, we've been talking about Moral Mondays with local Indiana legal services attorney William Morris and Joe Varga, labor studies scholar at IU. Uh, stay with us. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Our topic tonight is Moral Mondays. Make no mistake. This is no mere hyperventilation of partisan pouting. Oh no, this is a fight for the future and soul of our state. It doesn't matter what the critics call us. What matters is what we answer to. Uh, they can deride us. They can try to deflect from the issue. And we understand that because they can't debate us on the issue. They can't make their case on moral and constitutional ground. They may call us whiners and losers and leftists and socialists, but we say if we are leftists, then the Bible and, and the Constitution are the Magna Carta of leftist documents. If we are whiners and losers, 
whiners and leftists, as Mr. Tillis says, then the prophets of the Bible were whiners and looters because did not they say, let justice roll down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream? So we don't answer to that because we know who we are. We are black, we are white, we are Latino, we are Native American, we are Democrat, we are Republican, we are independent, we are people of faith, we are people not of faith, but who, though they are secular, they still believe in a moral universe. We are people, we are natives and immigrants, we are business leaders and workers and unemployed, we are doctors and the uninsured, we are gay, we are straight, we are students, we are parents, we are retirees. We are North Carolina. We just heard Reverend Dr. William Barber at a rally in North Carolina where the Moral Mondays movement got its start. Barber is the head of the North Carolina chapter of the NAACP. Uh, we're back uh, with Joe uh, Varga and William Morris, and that's powerful stuff, um, William Morris, and it does speak to your what you said initially and what you've said throughout. This is a coalition of all kinds of people from every walk of life, from every political perspective perhaps, although I still have to say that this is this is um, something that we could set against a particular kind of politics and a particular kind of economics, a particular way of doing business. Um, you know, as I think about how cities are governed and cities are managed, uh, we pay attention to the Chamber of Commerce, we pay attention to what businesses want, and we give breaks to corporations. That is a whole different ballgame in trying to understand how we put people in front of those particular very entrenched and very um, day-to-day things we, we see as the ground of our very being. I get up and I go to work, that's first. I think about social justice, second, if I do. I understand, and I think when you listen to Reverend Barber and if you listen to to me and other people who are part of Moral Mondays, what we're trying to do in using uh, what Reverend Barber would feel comfortable with, a Christian metaphor, what we're trying to do is put a candle on a hill and just try to say over some course of time starting this weekend, we are here and we hear your problem. We are here and we hear your problem. Now, I want to tell you something. I am just like Reverend Barber. He actually, he's born in Indiana, so he can, he's a son of North Carolina now. But I am from, North, from Indiana, and I love being from Indiana. And I feel very, very strongly about doing what I can to help the poor people of this state. When we go into Southern Indiana, and I have had the opportunity to drive around Southern Indiana, Southern Indiana is very different than the Bloomington Island. When we go a mile in any direction, that's where the soldiers start to come from. That's where the farmers are struggling. That's where people don't have a high quality education. That's where people come up short. That's where large amounts of poverty exist. And I don't like to see that in my state. Now, there's people like Joe, who's an expert in labor, and Rob and Karen Stone, they're experts in, in health care, and Diana's an expert in, in education. I'm an expert in going out to try to tell people they need help, we need help, we need to learn how to work together. There's hope. There's candle on the hill. And that's my job. Uh, at some particular point, Joe will fill my head with things about labor, and I'll go out and I'll be Joe's mouthpiece, and Diana, and Rob. But at this particular point, all I want to do is to go out and say to people, there's something new. Come to Indianapolis this week, see what it's like, and let's try to see if we can get up and start taking baby steps before we figure out how to run. And, you know, I want to go ahead and just say this one more time. Sure. What we ultimately want to do is look at 
the courthouse, the state house, and the voting booth. And that's where we want to try to figure out how to get people to start moving and let them know. Because right now, and I think you said it in your description, Doug, people are just still thinking about how do I go to work tomorrow, and I understand that. But there are ways out there, and we have to try to be that way. You know, and I know Reverend Barber talks about this. Just like in the moral universe, we have to struggle every day, love versus hate, and everybody understands this. Everybody understands this internal struggle, that one voice on my shoulder that says, William, you can do it, and another voice that says, no, you can't. And every day I have to struggle with that voice. Well, just like what we're trying to do, every day we've got to struggle with a good democracy. Democracy doesn't happen because we happen to live here. It happens because we participate in it, because we get involved and we start to walk to the courthouse, to the voting booth, to the state house. And if we don't do that, and if the people don't do that, then what's going to happen is things continue to get worse. But right now, they do not know that an option exists. And that's our job, is to let them know that we can create another option. This seems to be a really important time, too. If, you, if, you, if I just sort of stepped into this space and said, the world has become a very different place in terms of uh, surveillance, in terms of how we live our lives on the computers, off, uh, you know, not really very personal, uh, not very physical, not very material. We, we go about our, our world in a way that isn't engaged with people very often. So it seems to me that this is exactly the right time where you need to have bodies in the streets. You need to have bodies that come together and show uh, show what living as a human is. And it's not just on being on your Facebook or sending emails or, or, or pledging to credo online. Yeah. And Joe, go ahead, Joe. Yeah, we had been talking historically before and we got off the track, but I want to come back to it because there's been these periods of upheaval in American history where you'll get, you know, periods like the Gilded Age and then you'll get the reaction to it. And one of those, the ones that people are most familiar with are things like uh, FDR's New Deal. And if we go back and we look at that, FDR came into office at a time of crisis, and he basically was a patrician. He was from the upper class. He had a sympathy for the working person, but he had no real program for the working person. Uh, he had kind of vague outline. And he, what he said basically was, make me do it, um, and, and said it to his supporters. And particularly uh, the one I know about best is labor. Labor made him do it. How did they do it? They did it by occupying factories, by sit-down strikes, by striking in the streets and then also using the ballot box and then also using these other mechanisms but they got in the streets and they occupied the factories and they engaged in sit-down strikes and they said this system is not going to operate as business as usual until our concerns and our grievances are addressed. And that forced the Roosevelt administration to address those grievances through legislation. And even after the legislation was passed, the, the, you know, the National Labor Relations Act, there were still corporate interests that fought against it and the people had to go out again and again. It's a long march. It is a long march to freedom. Um, and so that this is, there is no more important time than right now to reclaim. And, and I actually, frankly, don't know how we're going to do that. Um, because we are at a point where the militarization of our public spaces is, uh, if you are an activist, you know what I am saying. Um, try to go out and do something in public space. Try to go out and block access to, to a, a key point of commerce, and you'll see what happens. So what we need, I believe, 
are numbers. The only way we are going to get this to change is through sheer numbers and the force of our moral argument. And that is where uh, Indiana Moral Mondays, I think, can be a key player right and now. And this goes back to what you were saying, Doug. You're right. The other side fights, and they have a lot of money. And so we sit down and we think, okay, so how are we going to beat them? Are we going to go money for money? Probably not. So we could give up. We could just watch things get worse. We can watch the African-American community continue to deteriorate. We can watch uh, people who are in poverty uh, continue to struggle, get deeper and deeper into, into debt, into hopelessness. Or we can start to try to figure out, okay, what can we do to try to make it better? We really have no choice. This is our obligation. If we want to live in really, what, what is a democracy? One of the things that they talk about in North Carolina, they talk about us being a part of this third reconstruction. The first reconstruction, of course, taking place after the Civil War. And, and, and one of the things that they always emphasize is multiracial groups working together. Blacks and whites, Latinos, Asians, always working together. And so then after that first reconstruction, when some advancement was made, there was a backlash. And that backlash took shape in the form of KKK and other kinds of things. Plessy v. Ferguson, separate but equal, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. The second reconstruction comes up and we see basically Montgomery, Brown versus Board of Education, the Civil Rights Movement, Dr. King, other things like that. But then there's a backlash after that through Reaganomics and those kind of things. Then we see what he would call now or what North Carolina uh, mindset would say is there's a third reconstruction. And that's sort of epitomized by the election of Barack Obama and that sort of formation of that Democratic Congress that Obama had where he was able to start to try to get through health care. But then we see that there's a pushback now. Now the question is, as this pushback comes, as symbolized by the Cook brothers or other things, what are we going to do? So... I think our response is to take courage, head toward the state house, head toward the courthouse, head toward the voting booth, and try to figure out how to mobilize. We can do it, and I believe in people. I believe in the people of Indiana. They just have to understand, all of us, really what's at stake. And, uh, and Joe and Diana and Rob and all of these other people who have signed on, the National League of Women Voters, uh, Hoosiers for a Common Care Health Plan, Unitarian Universalist Church, and other organizations. Very smart and capable people, right? Very smart and capable people who I believe will come up with different ways and different strategies to help us figure out how to reach people. Now, we understand right now, one of the things, we've have some, we have some shortages in the movement, in this movement so far in the next six months. We haven't done all we can to reach the college in the students. Indiana movement. In the Indiana movement. Mm -hmm. We haven't done all we can to reach faith communities yet. And we still have a lot of outreach to do. And I'm very, very encouraged that this outreach is going to take place because the people who are in it right now, one, they're in it to stay, and two, they got hearts as big as Alumni Hall. <laughs> if I could, when I, when I went to the first organizing meeting up in Indianapolis in March, I'm going to say I'm not from around here, and most people know I'm not from around here. I came here from the East Coast and from New York, where I never went to any kind of coalition meeting or political progressive meeting that wasn't diverse. It wasn't racially diverse. We, that we didn't have African Americans, that we didn't have a Latino uh, contingent or were or dominated by uh, one of, uh, you know, a racial minority group. And my experience here in, in Southern Indiana has been, um, has not been that. And so I was really refreshed when I went up to that first organizing meeting to see that the first thing that John Stansfield talked about was let's make race and racism 
one of the focuses of this movement, and that was so refreshing to me to hear because, frankly, the, the racism in Indiana is one of our biggest problems. It is a savage problem. And to put that together, as, as William so eloquently talked about, as one of the two tent poles, racism and poverty, um, those are the two things that, I mean, if you, those are the things that you feel. So I can talk all I want about how income inequality right now, the lack of worker bargaining power in the workplace is literally destroying our economy and our communities. And, and mainstream economists are saying that, that, and Standard and Poor's are saying that. But we feel racism and we feel poverty and we feel economic injustice. And that, that's something that can't be translated into uh, that kind of expertise. That's something that we can only get when we get together in these kind of coalitions and we move, we move forward. And we talked about this a little bit last night, and I'll say this again and again. Doug, there's a big difference between knowing what's in a book or knowing there what there is to know about poverty and going out and touching and hugging and working with a poor person. And that's what I'm hoping that this movement will come to represent. That not only are we talking about the emotional or the intellectual aspects of poverty, but that we're willing to be there with you, to touch you, to embrace you, to pull you up. That's really what this is all about. And I believe that there's going to be people who will hear us. You got a couple. Got last, a couple last comment. Okay. Um, as you Joe know, I, I was deeply involved, and I've been on this show talking about mm -hmm. the Occupy movement. And the Occupy movement was the same kind of reaction against injustice and the obvious savage inequalities in our system. But it was kind of a left hook. It was a left hook out of nowhere. It was wonderful. I mean, if you look at what we were talking about politically in September of 2011, and you look at where inequality is uh, and how we're talking about it now, change the whole game. This movement, I think, could be not the left hook. It could be the rope-a-dope. Hmm. You, if you remember Muhammad Ali against George Foreman, he, sit, he sat against the ropes, he, he fought the long fight, and he eventually took this guy who was almost twice his size and he knocked him out because he was in for the long haul. And again, this is not disparaging any other movements or anything else that's been going on, but this, I'm hoping the way that it's being framed and the way that it's being conducted can be that long haul movement, the rope and dope that can get us back into the game. I'm going to say one real quick thing, simply because it makes me want to be careful as we go forward. As you, as you know that we've been pushing college education on a lot of, uh, of, of a, what I would think a, a class of, of people that hadn't had college educations before. So we go from college and we go from work we go to worker training and we create, again, a debt class. We create a class that expects to work for this particular wage and to go through life in these particular ways. And this is not necessarily conducive to the mind on direct action or the mind on uh, dissent. And so I think for me, it's it's one of those things that I, I've been annoyed by a little bit in, in is this whole push to college and this whole push for living the business life in some sense or the mm. work life. So yeah. uh, that sorry, that was just no, a, a little editorial. Can we come back in six months and talk to you about let's, that? Let's do that. Let's <laughs> let's definitely do that. Now so you're that. talking precarity. That's my newest topic. <laughs> oh, good. Know? Okay, yeah. good. We will do that. Good. Uh, that's all the time we have tonight. Thanks to William Morris and Joe Varga for joining us uh, to discuss the grassroots social justice movement Moral Mondays, which started in North Carolina and has now been established established in Indiana. Moral Mondays Indiana will hold a rally this weekend, the 19th and 20th in Indianapolis at the Crispus Attucks Medical Magnet High School. You can find out more about it on their website, indianamoralmondays.org, and their Facebook page. Next week on Interchange, I'll be joined by Trish Curley for a look at the state of Hoosier evolution. 2016 will be the bicentennial of the founding of the 19th state in the Union, Indiana. 
From deeply held traditions rooted in a pioneer past to a state brimming with labor unions at the turn of the 20th century, from a bastion of Ku Klux Klan activity in the 1920s to the manufacturing mecca it is today, we'll explore the territory of Indiana's complex and sometimes surprising past with historian James Madison, author of the new book Hoosiers, A New History of Indiana. That's next week on Interchange on WFHB. Thanks for listening tonight. Our board engineer is Jonathan Richardson. Executive producer is Allison Bektesh. Our theme music is by Jamil Effium. I'm Doug Storm, and this has been Interchange. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on WFHB. Real people. Real issues. This is your forum. This is Interchange. Written and produced entirely by volunteers working in the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Interchange fosters unfiltered open dialogue on the people, issues, and events impacting life in South Central Indiana and beyond. Comments, suggestions, and program ideas may be sent directly to the Interchange staff. The email address is news at wfhb.org. That address once again is news at wfhb.org.